in this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to be talking about food for longer trips and expeditions, choosing companions for expeditions, foraging for calories, valuable lessons learned in the outdoors, tarps and bivvies for colder months, drinking while you're hiking in areas where there isn't much water available, and tree and plant ID guides. Welcome, welcome to episode 44 of Asport Kirtley. And it's a few weeks since I last recorded one. It's been a busy few weeks. Um, as you will have seen, if you follow my blog, you'll have seen all of the canoe trip footage from the trip with Kevin Callan and Justine and Ray Goodwin. If you haven't seen that 12 part epic series, it's really a lot of fun. Go over to my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk. Um, we filmed that trip in quite a lot of detail. There were some fun off-river components of the trip and some really fun on-river components of the trip as well, as well as all the camping. We wild camped along the whole route as well. So if you haven't seen that, it was on Kevin's YouTube channel, but I've embedded each video in a blog on my blog, each part one through 12, and you can find them on my blog very easily. Also, I've been in Wales doing some canoeing, um, some of it with my team from Frontier Bushcraft, um, some skills training there, and I've got a couple of videos coming up as well. They'll be on my YouTube channel as well as on my blog, so check those out. There's been a lot of outdoor stuff going on. And for those of you that are not in the UK and maybe thinking it's a bit crazy, it's December, why they shouldn't they be putting their canoes away for the winter? Well, actually, it's, it's kind of our canoe season now, November, December, January, February, March, because it's outside the fishing season and some rivers there are issues with fishing rights and canoeists not being able to paddle them during the fishing season. That's just um, a function of the way that the laws have worked here in the UK for a long time. Um, also, um, that's when we often have most water in our really good paddling rivers. So winter, provided it's not frozen over, um, winter's a really good time to be getting out paddling. And so you'll see a lot of people getting their canoes out and doing some paddling at this time of year. Um, also for a lot of people who work in outdoor education, over the winter when it's a little bit less busy like it is with us we're very busy with teaching people in the woods from easter right through till october um, once we get into november and december we've got a bit more time to ourselves to work on our own skills so again in terms of doing um, just some recreational paddling or doing some uh, canoe uh, qualifications or certifications coaching certifications those sorts of things winter is when we tend to be doing those things also just getting out for a hike i'm out for a hike today um about a 10 11 mile hike that i'm doing today um, i've stopped a couple of hours into it for a coffee and a snack and i thought i would record an episode of Asport Curly. i've only got my little canon g7 camera with me today and it stops after about 15 minutes if i remember rightly so i'm going to have to keep an eye uh, on the screen i've got the flip screen up i have to keep an eye on that so if i keep looking away from the camera that's why i'm not being distracted by anything in the background i just want to make sure it's still recording and i'll have to sort of stop and start it a couple of times so i don't um, run out of time but it is a bit drizzly today so i'm going to crack on without further ado and get through these questions without too much delay and um, I've sort of made a bit of a random selection. I have, uh, as always, there's always a backlog. A few people have contacted me and said, um, why haven't you answered my question? I get a lot of questions and I can only do one of these a week at most. And I know I haven't done one for several weeks. So apologies if you've been waiting for one. A few people have asked me where these are. I'm back on schedule now. I should be able to get one of these out a week going forwards. Um, it's hard to record them while you're in a canoe. <laughs> it's easier to record them when you're hiking. 
All right, food for longer trips and expeditions. So some of these questions are from um, very recently. Some of them are from a while ago. I've just sort of selected them at random from the pool of questions and um, I will continue to do that until I get through the backlog. So if I haven't answered your question, um, please bear with me. All right, so this is from Brian Legat, and his question is, hi Paul, having listened to episode 41 of Ask Paul Kirtley and previously having watched your videos on packing food for a week and nutrition, my question relates to longer term journeys and expeditions, greater than a week duration. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how you plan menus and pack food for longer durations and especially how you deal with fresh foods, especially meats. For the purposes of discussion, you might wish to consider uh, breaking the question into two parts, one discussing self-mobile solo journeys on foot and one discussing journeys where transport such as canoe, ATV or even horse are available to help take the load. I'm assuming that hunting or trapping fresh food is not a viable option. Once again, many thanks for the generosity of your content. Regards, Brian. Well, that's a really good question, Brian. As someone want to say, I, I try not to answer um, bad questions, um, but that is a good question. And um, in terms of in terms of walking, in terms of self-propelled on-foot journeys, you're going to struggle walking more than a week or so carrying your own food um, in terms of volume of a general rucksack so to start off with you're going to have to maybe get a slightly bigger rucksack and then it's about how much weight you can carry your food particularly these days with so much good quality lightweight equipment available these days food tends to make up the largest proportion of weight in your rucksack once you get beyond an overnighter or a couple of days and um, you know on a on a longer term hike you're going to be looking for maybe up to about a kilo of food a day and um, to provide you with the calories you can start off with getting away with less than that um, because your body doesn't quite get up to the sort of calorie um, burning levels that you do once you get about a week or so into a journey and that's the same whether you're in a canoe or on foot you tend to find that your appetite increases as you continue into the journey. Um, you will be burning body fat to start off with and you will uh, you'll be burning that um, and then as you go on you'll start to feel more hungry. So if you're just doing a couple of days you can get away with almost not taking enough food. Um, once you get into a week or longer you, you need to take a bit more per day and a general rule of thumb, particularly if it's a little bit colder, um, is a kilo per day. So you can think about how much weight you can carry in combination with your camping equipment and think about well, how long can you go. Um, some expeditions in the past have decided to, to take uh, you know, three quarter rations or half rations and just lose weight along the way. And that's another option. So you've got to decide how far do you want to go without replenishing. And that brings us on to the next thing of replenishing. If you look at through hikers who do long distance trails, um, everything from hiking, you know, something in the UK like the Pennine Way, which is getting on for 300 miles, right through to doing something like the Appalachian Trail in North America, which is nearer to 3000 miles, you're gonna have to get some more food along the way. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. There's, there is a limit to how much you can carry. Um, there's a there's a there's a trade-off. Um, yes, you have to maybe deviate from your route less if you're carrying more food. Yes, you can just get on with the route, but clearly the more weight you've got on the back, the slower you're going to be. If you're carrying no food, you can travel much quicker, but clearly then you're going to run out of energy. So it's a balance between those two demands of not taking so much that you're a beast of burden underneath your rucksack and not taking so much that you actually can't progress. Um, over the distance that you need to cover and you end up with soreness, injuries and of course you're going to burn more calories. The more you carry on your back the more calories you're going to burn. So I would say work on the basis that you're going to carry at most, most of the time a week, maybe up to 10 days of food under normal circumstances and then look at how you can replenish along the way. Can you post food parcels to a, a post office or, or a, a, a hostelry, a, you know, a bed and breakfast or a motel or anything along the route, depending on where you are, can you post something 
and uh, leave it there for you when you get there. Can you have somebody drop something somewhere? Um, those are the sorts of things you want to be thinking about. Is there a store where you can buy supplies? That's the sort of thing you want to be thinking about. And there's been very good books written about longer term routes. Um, listen to the podcast that I did with, um, with Chris Townsend. Um, he talks about some of the long distance hikes that he's done and some of the longest legs that he did in terms of carrying food and equipment. I think there was one where he was out for about 20 days um, in difficult, almost winter conditions, and that was one of the toughest spells. And that, that's kind of the extreme of what you want to be carrying on your back, really. Um, in terms of canoeing, you can take a lot more when you're canoeing, but at some point, if you're portaging, you're still gonna have to carry it. Um, but you are generally not going to have to carry it so far, maybe you know, a few hundred meters. The longest portages on some of the lake trips I've done are a couple of kilometers. So you might be walking the route with some gear, coming back, walking it with the boat. And you know, if you're two people in a boat, for example, both of you walk it with your gear or food, come back, one of you takes the boat, the other one takes the rest of the the packs and, and whatnot so you're covering it in two some people do try and do it in one but again the more weight you've got the harder it is to do it in one and if you're in remote areas where the the portage trail may need clearing you don't really want to be tackling it first time with a boat on your head and all your gear on your back and trying to cut branches and clear logs and things that have fallen across the trail you're just going to injure yourself so best to walk the trail with a pack maybe with an axe or a saw with you if it's likely to be um, blocked or potentially blocked if it's remote do that and then back and, and back again um, so carrying you know carrying 30 kilos 40 kilos on your back for a kilometer isn't that bad and particularly once you get into it if you're doing a longer trip you're going to get fitter as you go as well and you and your barrels and packs are going to get lighter so start off um covering less distance being less ambitious and as you get fitter and as your stuff gets lighter you can cover you can cover more distance in a day so you've got to think about the distance that you're covering as well for the weight that you're carrying even when you're canoeing um, snowshoeing with toboggans similarly you can take quite a lot with you you can take a lot more food with you on a canoe trip or a toboggan trip than you can on a backpacking trip because it's not on your back um, yes you've got to haul it um, yes, you've got to make it make it move through the water, but there is less impact on your frame, on your musculature, on your joints, on your feet, um, and you can carry more weight that way. So in terms of what do you take with you? Well, um, it's really an extension of, of those things that you've already seen. Um, on a two-week canoe trip, what we tend to try and do is try and take some fresh food for the first week. So you could take some fresh meat, some fresh vegetables, um, and eat reasonably well like you would at home in the first week. And then in the second week, go on to the more dehydrated sorts of foods that I put in that backpacking um, article where it was all of a menu into one side pocket. Um, and you've got a lot of choice of whether or not you go to the supermarket and make up your own menus, or whether you buy um, dehydrated freeze-dried foods like the Backpackers Pantry or the Real Termat from Norway. And um, there's some really good stuff out there that's lightweight and tasty. Um, and, and that's, the way, that's the way you can do it. With meats in particular, you ask specifically, what we do at the beginning of a trip is take some frozen meat. So it's vacuum-packed steaks, for example, frozen, vacuum-packed pork chops, frozen, um, frozen, you can take bacon um, and individually packed. Bacon lasts quite well anyway because it's salted. So it defrosts over the first few days and it's fresh well into the first week. And it's the same with veggies. Some veggies you need to eat pretty quickly. Other veggies last ages. Carrots last a long time. Red cabbage lasts a long time. Potatoes last a long time. Uh, onions last a long time. So you could even be making like a sort of fresh cabbage um, and carrot and you know dried fruit, you know raisins and that and that sort of thing. Some vinegar and black pepper salad in the second week for something fresh. So you can over if you're doing a two or three week 
trip. You can continue to have fresh stuff as you go, mixed in with the dehydrated stuff. You can make breads, which taste fresh, even if you're carrying the dried ingredients. If you're baking fresh bread, whether it's an unleavened bread like a bannock or even flatbreads or a garlic bread, garlic pan bread article on my blog, for example, you can make those well into the trip. You get fresh food that way fresh tasting, fresh cooked food, rather than just that sort of stodgy dehydrated stuff. Start off fresh, intersperse with some longer lasting fresh stuff and make some stuff in camp as you go as well. That's, that's what I would do on a canoe trip. Um, winter camping, similar. You can, if you're in a heated tent, you can make some really good meals from dehydrated. You can put um, things like sweet potatoes and other vegetables on a dehydrator before you go and make some really nice stews. You've got long evenings in a in a, uh, in a heated tent. So there's some ideas there for you, Brian. Hopefully that helps. If you've got more specific questions, ask, uh, ask away. Thank you. Okay, next question. Coming from Brian Trubshaw. This is a question about companions on trips. So we've talked about food for trips, now we're gonna talk about companions for trips. And that's just coincidence, um, just the way that I've chosen these um, at random. This is a question back from September. And I think we've had a bit of a conversation about this since Brian. Brian came on our River Spay trip in early October um, with myself and Ray Goodwin, and we had a somewhat similar conversation to this question and um, it's not exactly the same question that you asked so um, hopefully this gives another perspective as well so brian's question is hi paul hope you're well here's a question regarding who to take with you on an expedition or trip as i move forward in the outdoors i want to take on more and more challenging expeditions so something i'm beginning to give more thought to is who i would want to go with as i will obviously be relying on these people for teamwork Obviously you want to get on well with these people and I assume now you are I assume now you are surrounded with people of high levels of experience but was there ever a time when you had to look at the attributes of people around you and what were you looking for in these people kind regards Brian Well that's another excellent question you could probably write a book on that subject really there's psychology and all sorts involved there um, but one thing I would say is I think you've always got to think about uh, people that you might uh, ask to join you on a trip that you've got in mind. Um, and it could be that you ask them quite early on and you form the trip around each of your aspirations and what you want to achieve. Or it might be that you envisage the trip yourself um, sort of Shackleton style and then put a, you know, men needed for arduous journey, etc, etc. Um, so it, it kind of depends, but I think however you do it, whatever level you're at, um, you're still going to have to, to think about the right sort of characters. And they clearly need to get on with you, but also they need to get on with each other. Um, you know, that can be an issue as well. So I think the better you know people, um, you can you can start to select well that guy he's good with everybody that guy he's not good with that type of person you can start to understand the combinations that are going to work um, so it's a little bit like picking a team for anything whether it's you know picking a team for football picking a cycling team picking a team for a you know an adventure race or whatever it is you're doing you're going to look at different people's strengths different people's attributes where they're good where they're strong um, and, uh, and, and choose accordingly. I think the other thing as well to remember is it isn't just about um, diminishing the negatives, it's also about um, emphasizing the positives. You know, you can end up with a team on a trip that is stronger than the sum of its parts. You know, there might, somebody, you know, Jimmy might have a weakness, but um, Dave may have uh, a strength in a, in a complementary area and, and, and as a team, you're gonna be stronger than if you didn't have Dave or, 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 or the other guy um, on the team at all. So that's another thing to think about. Um, so you've got to look at what you're trying to achieve and then I think you've got to take it on a case by case basis in terms of understanding um, the right sort of people. Now, as I say, the clearly the better you know those people, um, the, the better chance you have of making the right selection. 
So it's, it's possible that you want to do maybe some shorter trips with them. If you've got a big trip in mind, you know, it might be a couple of weeks trip in a wilderness somewhere. Maybe you do a weekend trip a bit closer to home. Not exactly a selection, but you know, if you're doing, you know, uh, if you're doing a hiking trip in, um, you know, in a remote area, maybe you go out and do a couple of nights out in the Lake District, for example, going uphill, downdale, just to see whether they cope, just to see whether they have the same sort of motivation that you have to get going early in the morning and, you know endure the conditions that you're willing to endure or whatever it is and maybe you can experiment with different combinations of people and then once you've decided upon a group to do a trip then maybe you have a few training weekends as well so that you're all on the same page with how things work in terms of make sure everybody's equipment's right but also that everybody knows how to use the equipment that they know how to work together um, that you get sort of tenting arrangements and get roles in camp sorted and all those sorts of things um, and if it doesn't work then you reserve the right to say hey guys this isn't working we need to change up and you've got the opportunity to discuss it and change up or you've got the opportunity to say actually guys I'm not happy with this I think it's going to be a disaster um, let's change the trip or let's let's um, agree to maybe do a different trip together or agree that it's not right for you um, and I think most people if they're honest with themselves if you come to that quite a stark conclusion that it's really not right for them if they're honest with themselves they'll probably agree it's either right for them or it isn't um, um, in terms of personality I think we all have to make our own decisions about who we're going to get on with um, if it's if, if we're talking about that and we had a bit of a discussion about that on the on the spade didn't we about the type of people um, that are going to pull their weight on trips um, and that's always going to be the case that's always going to be the case whatever level you're at some people are going to pull more weight than others and there is there is always some leeway for that uh, on a trip of course as I say some people have strengths in one area some people have strengths in other areas but at the end of the day you're still going to have to make a decision about whether that person's right um, for the trip and however good mates you are uh, at home going down the pub or just seeing each other socially that doesn't mean to say they have a right to come with you on any trip that you're doing um, because that could be a complete disaster for everybody so I think you have to be very objective about it in that sense that the right people come with you and not just your mates because they're your mates um, I think that's the other thing so um, look at people's strengths um, look at combinations of people and make sure you're not just inviting people because they came on the last trip with you you might only ever do one trip with some people but that might be they might be amazing trips and then you move on to other people that have got the right attributes for a different type of trip that you want to do because don't forget they can go off and do trips with other people as well it's just you come together with the right people to do the right trips and that's the best thing for everybody so hopefully that helps i know it's a little bit umbrella you know helicopter view but hopefully that gives you some frameworks to work in Good question, Brian. Next question is from Quixotic Geek. Hi there, good to hear from you again. Um, I'm learning about wild food and foraging. While I'm finding lots of plants that can be eaten, a lot of the edible plants are in the form of leaves or flowers. In order to meet the energy requirements of even a low activity day, uh, recommended daily amount, 2000 calories per day for a woman, I would be looking at quantities that wouldn't be reasonably eaten in a day. For example, over six kilograms of sea kale leaves would be needed to get that much energy, assuming similar calories to cabbage. Even fruit doesn't help much. 80 apples would be needed. Obviously, I could pad these out with fish or fowl, but foraging in Britain, I only really have access to the four Fs what are my options for calorie rich foods that can be found in britain cheers julia all right um yeah it's <laughs> you you've kind of hit the crux of the problem with and, and cut through the romantic idea of foraging particularly foraging in um uh, a modern agricultural northern European country where the landscape is quite devoid in some ways of 
natural foods. If you think about the amount of space given over to fields, either for cattle and sheep uh, or crops, um, th there there is no wild food growing really, apart from perhaps around the margins. And so you've got this massive amount of space which is <laughs> has been uh, scoured of, of the potential for having wild foods in it and so you're left sort of running around the margins and what woodland there is and strips like where I am now alongside a river which is you know steep and rocky um, it, you know not so much that you can't get down here but um, it's not somewhere that you're going to farm and therefore it's natural it's left um, to its own devices and you're going to get more of a natural spread of trees and plants here um, and I think that's the first thing to recognize um, the first thing to recognize is that you, you're just not living in an environment where it's in any way, shape or form similar to the one where people would have been pure hunter-gatherers. Um, it, it just isn't the same. Um, in terms of, so in terms of quantities, that's part of the issue, just in terms of the quantities of things that you might be able to gather. Um, second point there is what you really need to look for for calories are um, starches and fats um, as opposed to simple sugars and leafy greens and yes you are going to get a lot of micronutrients from eating a range of fruits and a range of leafy greens and I'm not saying don't have those in your diet but you're going to have to go more for nuts which are rich in starches and fats you're going to have to go and protein you're going to have to go for um, tuberous roots so things like um, you talked about sea kale what about the roots of sea kale for example you're going to get a lot more calories from from those so tuberous roots um, some thistles have roots that you can eat carrot family have some have roots that you can eat but you have to be very careful with the carrot family because of um, the poisonous members of that family so get to know them carefully um, not everything that looks like a parsnip is a parsnip. Um, burdock, cattails, those type of things, even dandelions, silverweed, pignuts, starchy roots like that. Then looking at the processing things like um, marsh marigolds, roots which are toxic in some ways and toxic raw processing the roots as lesser celandines, which is similar to marsh marigolds, same family, buttercup family, ranunculaceae, poisonous, um, have some toxins in them, but you can process them to, re to reduce the amount of toxins in them, um, the roots, and get some starches out of them. And you've got things like bistorts and other things with, um, with starches in them. So there are starchy roots around, but you have, to, you have to work for them, you have to dig them up. And again, there's a lot less of them around than there might have been th whether it's through clearance of areas where they would naturally grow for other purposes whether that's towns and cities or agriculture and also then you've got um, uh, you've got drainage and clearance of the sides or drainage of, of wet areas so you've got less aquatic plants that have got starchy roots uh, rhizomes on them and also the clearance and the, and the clearing of the side of rivers for fishing and other activities where you might otherwise get those plants growing. So you've got limited, relatively limited opportunity to get, gather those things and um, you've got to work harder to get them. But those are the sorts of things you want to be looking for. And it is a challenge to look through the year and find uh, calories just from plant foods right the way through the year. And yes, I think particularly in the winter, you would have to be adding um, things that you'd gathered in the autumn. So remember lots of nuts and fruits you could gather in the autumn, preserve them um, for over the winter, either by making fruit leathers or by turning some of the nuts into flowers, seeds into flowers. Of course, we haven't talked about seeds. Um, you know, grass seeds you have to be careful with because of ergot, um, but there is potential there. Sedge seeds, um, some of the docks, um, plantains, those sorts of things you could process seeds. Um, turn them into flowers, make bannocks or just store them um, for, for when you want to. 
um, and then into into the winter you're probably going to have to probably going to have to supplement with some with some uh, animal foods as well and don't forget fishing as well you know fish are a good source of fat and protein as well so I think you've got to have a real wide-ranging set of skills and an in-depth knowledge of trees and plants um, in order to live from the land through the year but it's possible it's possible still I would say but you'd have to work at it pretty much 24 7 and I would say that if you're going to start from scratch you'd have to start at the most favorable time of the year when there were a lot of foods around and you could get a lot processed and in the bank for the tougher times of the year so that you had some resources to to fall back on so keep learning your trees and your plants for food because there's a lot of potential out there all right next question good photo i'm hopefully going to get through this one before the camera runs out of time this is a great photo from one of our um one of our canoeing courses our expedition canoeing courses back in the summer it's from martin tomlinson who is on that course and he's uh, emptying a boat there from a little capsize <laughs> um and his question is, uh, hi Paul, we all make mistakes, some of them bigger and more costly than others, especially when outdoors. Hopefully we get to learn from them and become better at the things we do in life. In all the time you have spent outdoors, which mistake have you made that has taught you the most valuable lesson? It's a good question. Um, I like these Instagram photos uh, and questions, by the way. They're a nice visual way of asking the question. Of course, please do keep sending them in by email, um, but I'm, I'm really liking the, uh, liking the Instagram questions. And um, don't forget about SpeakPipe. SpeakPipe costs me money to have it there, and it's not really been used very much by people recently. Um, I do like getting the, the, um, the questions that way as well. You know, it, it's a nice mix if we get some visual ones, if we get some audio questions, if we get some text ones. So please do use all the different means. Um, that, that would be good. Anyway, back to, uh, back to Martin's question. Most valuable mistakes. Um, well, we'll start off with canoeing. I've made a lot of mistakes paddling and I think you um you have to keep pushing the envelope um, in terms of your skills within the bounds of reasonable safety um, as i say i've just been doing some paddling and i was trying a few things um, in terms of moves on a on a river that if i was in a more remote setting i would never try but i was not far from uh, help and um, i had a good group of people with me who i was uh, completely confident that would rescue me should I fall in and I did fall in a couple of times um, and had I hurt myself I you know we were not far from a road we're not far from transportation we've got mobile phone signal um, whereas in the wilderness I would be much more conservative and I would have portaged and lined around that obstacle but you've got to keep pushing your skills and you've got to know when you can make mistakes and also when you're pushing your skills in those situations um, you know where the boundaries are for when you're in remote more remote settings and you can't take those risks so it, it, it goes both ways that if you keep pushing your skills you're going to be better in most circumstances but also you're going to know the limits and you're going to know right there's a chance I'm going to go in here there's a chance I'm going to wrap my boat there's a chance I'm going to lose my gear whatever it is so I think you've almost got to seek out small mistakes so that you don't make the big ones um, in more serious settings that's part of learning it's the same with kids you know if you if you completely wrap them up in cotton wool and don't let them ever graze their knee or bump, bump their head a little bit then they're never going to learn and then they're going to fall off something and really hurt themselves in a more serious situation. So I think you almost need to actively look for the small mistakes that you can make where you're in a relatively safe setting to test yourself, to test your skills and find the boundaries. And that's, that's important. So all of those little mistakes that I've made, whether it's paddling, skiing, um, using a knife, um, building shelters and them leaking overnight, all of those small mistakes that you make are part of the overall learning experience and that's 
one of the reasons why you can't learn all of this stuff from books or from watching this video or listening to this as a podcast or watching my videos it can be a starting point it can be a handrail it can be a guiding uh, light or a um, or a point in the right direction but you're the one that has to go out and try things work things out for yourself and make them make them your own and you're inevitably going to make some mistakes along the way and I think you have to accept the fact you will make mistakes and then when you do make a mistake I think you should then reflect upon why you, why that mistake happened why it was a mistake why are you even thinking about it in the right way was it a mistake um, or is it something that's going to happen over and over and over and over again as a consequence of what you were doing and therefore you have to change right from first principles the way that you approach it um, you know just just you know for example some knife techniques are inherently unsafe and you know maybe you shouldn't be doing that um, for that outcome that you're looking for you have to just use a different method just you know it's not that you made a mistake using the right method you were just using the wrong method in the first place so having some reflection on what you're doing when you make mistakes I think is, is super super important um, and then if you want specifics getting cold and wet not taking enough food on trips sometimes you know it's like Brian's question at the beginning about food um, that has been an issue sometimes I've got the food wrong um, I've tried trips where I haven't taken a stove and I haven't cooked on a fire and I've eaten you know everything cold um, you know lived off flapjack, flapjacks and cold cereal and that sort of thing and you know I've tried lots and lots of different things and they're not always necessarily mistakes it's just some things are more successful than others some things are more comfortable than others and you get a range of different experiences and so you know okay if I need to achieve this I can do these things I can save weight this way I can save fuel this way it's going to be uncomfortable I'm not going to enjoy the food as much but that's going to allow me to cover the distance because I'm not carrying these things or that's not going to work in these really cold circumstances I need some warm food um, I need uh, warm drinks I need to get the calories in that way as well it makes a big big difference actually um, cooking food and warm drinks over and above just eating cold um, rations for example um, in terms of how quickly you get hungry and how much food you seem to be able to digest in a given period of time um, so all of those things you know um, I think one of the big things one of the big things that took me a while to learn was not biting off more I could more than I could chew in terms of distance it's very easy to look at a map and go oh I'm, I want to go from there to there um, and then trying to cover that distance without really properly appreciating the gradients um, the height that you have to climb um, the tough weather conditions that might be in the in those areas um, and then really giving myself an ordeal just because I was overly ambitious for my given level of fitness and experience those are some of the hardest lessons but some of the most valuable lessons and um, I think those tough conditions those tough trips give you a resilience and uh, a certain amount of stoicism that you wouldn't have had otherwise so there's value in all of these in all of these situations I think making hard trips and just trying to cover distance whether it's by canoe by foot by snowshoe by ski they're some of the best lessons they also make you much more efficient with all of your basic bushcraft your fire lighting your campcraft your navigation um, rather than sort of sitting around and lazily practicing things and there is there is time for that you need space you don't want to be pressured always when you're trying to practice skills but having to apply them in a real context that's a great learning experience as well I think the takeaway from that is don't be afraid to make mistakes and this is not just for Martin this is for everyone don't be afraid to make mistakes if the stakes are not particularly high um, don't, don't just think about it being a binary thing where mistake is bad not mistake is good nobody's judging you nobody's judging you um, it's about you being um, the most proficient person you can be in the circumstances that you want to put yourself in and um, or the circumstances you might find yourself in and making small mistakes or make or taking chances where the stakes are low but the potential for learning is high is really valuable um, and that's how you progress that's how you move along if you're constantly frightened of making mistakes you won't make 
much, if any, progress at all. So the fact that you capsize near to shore, you're going to learn a lot from that. And that's a lot better than capsizing a long way from shore in a very remote place if you've learned how to avoid that happening. So all good stuff, all good stuff. Lots of good stuff to think about there. Um, hopefully that's a valuable lesson in itself. All right, next one. Now we've talked about tarps and boobies a lot, so I'm not going to dwell on this question, but it is um, seasonally relevant. Um, this is from a little while ago. This came in in September, I think this question came in, from Tom Payton. And Tom's question is, Hi Paul, great vids. Always take something that I can use in my outdoor pursuits. Keep up the great work. This year I have been trying tarp and bivy setups and enjoying it compared with my one-man tent I had previously been using, feeling a bit closer to the environment. Is this setup suitable for the colder months ahead of what you would recommend? Sorry, I read that really badly. Is this suitable for the colder months ahead or what would you recommend and are there any other tips or considerations for the autumn months ahead? clearly we're kind of in the autumn months now we're still in autumn we're still in autumn i'm in scotland and generally camp in wooded areas well tarps are great for wooded areas um, and you can make a decision about whether you want to be what some people call a ground dweller or hanging from a tarp uh, hanging from a, a, a hammock i've discussed before that i'm not a huge fan of hammocks from personal reasons i don't like them in cold conditions i find them a faff I prefer just to be on the ground with a good insulating mat underneath me and a nice warm sleeping bag and be able to get in and out relatively easily and not have to worry about under blankets and under mats and over blankets and all those sorts of things. If you want to do that, absolutely fine. It's just it's not my preference. Um, I like keeping things simple and straightforward. Um, I tend to sleep on the ground pretty much throughout the year unless I'm somewhere tropical where I need to be up off the ground because of the insects or snakes or what have you around. Um, and even in areas, some people have asked me about sleeping in tarps um, when there's lots of biting insects around. Yeah, you can get a mozzie net as well. Um, sometimes I will choose to take a one-man tent with an inner and an outer rather than take all of that other stuff because it's lighter. And in really dry conditions, you can just sleep in the tent inner in your sleeping bag or on your sleeping bag if it's warm and the biting insects don't get to you. Um, that can often be a more flexible approach than taking a tarp and a mozzie net and all those sorts of things. It just depends. It just depends where you're going and what sort of circumstances you might be finding yourself camping on. Talked about longer canoe trips. I mean, yes, some camping spots you can set up tarps and mozzie nets and things. Other places it might be easier to set up a tent um, and get in there wherever you are. Um, I tend to take a tarp and a tent on longer trips, both lightweight, and then I can, I can make a decision about what I'm doing and how I set things up. And it's always good to have an outdoor space. Um, but back to your question, um, based on having tried lots and lots of different things, yeah, absolutely you can sleep um, on the ground, in a tarp, under a tarp, waking up, it's nice and fresh. I really like breathing in the cold, fresh air on a, on a winter's night or an autumn night or, a, or an early spring night. Um, I think the main thing is to have a warm enough sleeping bag. If you've got a four season, season sleeping bag, synthetic is fine as long as it's warm enough. It doesn't need to be some big expensive Arctic down bag. As long as it's a, a synthetic bag that's in decent condition, that's warm enough for the season, you'll be fine. Take some um, merino base layers as well. They can be useful during the day if it's particularly cold, but you can sleep in them as well. Be prepared to sleep in a hat. That can keep your head warm. You can take a balaclava if you want to, but that's for really colder conditions. And remember to use the baffles properly in your sleeping bag so that you're not letting warm air out when you turn over and you're sort of bellowing out the, the warm air out into the, into the night and sucking in cold air. And... Um, again insulation from the ground is important so make sure you've got a good insulative mat underneath you so that you're not losing heat into the ground. Um, I did do um, a video last winter um, with some tips for winter bivvying that would be um, that would be useful and I'll link that up in the YouTube video here and I'll put it in the show notes under episode 44 on my blog as well you can find them there. 
Um, and there was also another winter uh, camping article, sort of not, not sort of Arctic winter camping. I've done stuff on sleeping in heated tents, of course, and you can find that on my blog. But I did another one on winter bivvying as well with some tips for sleeping out in cold conditions in a bivvy bag and a sleeping bag and a sleeping mat. Some of that's outside under a tarp, some of it's in snow shelters. But those two things together, the woodland wild camping tips, 21 woodland wild camping tips, which will be linked up here, and the winter bivvying article combined should give you all the different tips and tricks and bits of knowledge that you need to comfortably sleep out in the northern temperate forest right through the winter including in Scotland so enjoy that and if you've got more specific questions Tom please come back but there is a ton of info in those articles and for the rest of you that have not seen those go to the show notes I'll link them up there and the 21 woodland wild camping tips will be linked in the cards here as well so check those out really relevant for this time of year all right next question this is from philip arthur james price um, and this goes back to late august apologies for not answering this sooner um, it's a little bit less relevant now but overall it's a good piece of knowledge to have and it's a good question um, the first question isn't the, isn't the main question why is it always decent weather on your videos <laughs> Well, it was raining a little bit earlier when I started filming this, but um, I don't mind being out in the rain and clearly I can put a tarp up. The problem is, um, as anybody that uses cameras and microphones will tell you, uh, cameras and mics don't really mix with a lot of water. And so filming in the rain is, um, <laughs> is, is the difficult thing. Being in the rain is not so hard. Filming in the rain is, is harder both from a sound perspective and just in general lenses getting moisture on them and um, cameras getting moisture in them um, generally not great so often we're we're filming when the weather's good all right so the the, the main question here is um, on a serious note i'd appreciate your thoughts on water consumption when tramping um, is it best to take a reasonable draft of water when setting off then maintaining your hydration levels with regular sips? The reason I ask is whilst on a three-day trip in, uh, to the Nida Plateau in Crete last month, I really struggled to stay hydrated given the small amount of water I could carry. Fortunately, I did have enough just to last a full trip, but I was wondering if you knew the most effective way to stay hydrated given a limited supply of water. Keep the videos coming, warm regards, Philip. Um, yeah, it can be really tricky and you wrote that in August, so you'll have been doing your trip in July and July in the, in the Mediterranean is hot and dry. Um, so yeah, I, drink a lot of water in the mornings. If you're camping somewhere, I don't know the specifics of the route that you've done, I've not done that route. Um, but generally, there's a general point when you're hiking, if you can drink a lot in the morning, it will make a big difference to how well hydrated you stay for the rest of the day. If you start the day off feeling dehydrated, maybe a bit of a headache, um, you're only going to go downhill from there if you don't get plenty of water in during the day. So if you can drink a litre of water minimum in the morning, um, just fresh water, get it down you, that will help your body regulate the um the uh the moisture through the day whereas if you if you're trying to play catch up the whole time you're going to struggle so if you can and it's most likely that you're going to be able to get water where you're camped because you're going to plan your campsites that's a thing to look at can you plan where you camp based on where the water sources are going to be that's generally what you're going to have to do on a hiking trip because um, you're going to need some water for cooking perhaps, you're going to need some water for drinking. On a longer trip you're also going to maybe need a bit of water for washing. Three days you can get away without it but certainly on a longer trip. And so plan where you camp based on water sources and then drink as much as you can in the mornings before you set off and then as soon as you get to your next camp try and get as much in as you can. Even on a canoeing trip, um, where we're surrounded by water all day, it's a pretty dire canoe trip if, you, if you're not surrounded by water all day. 
while we might use something like a catadine pocket filter to get some water at lunchtime, you're paddling a lot of the time and you're moving and you need to cover distance and we tend not to drink as much as maybe we should because it's you know you're paddling it's hard to stop and drink and um, so what we'd make a point of doing as soon as we get into camp um, is drinking plenty getting a kettle on getting everybody get a nice big cup of tea or juice or you know cordial or you know um, one of the the, the flavour crystals that you get um, or the, the isotonic drinks, something like that, getting a good amount of fluid in you as soon as you get into camp, then having food, having some carbohydrate-rich food. Remember carbohydrates, hydration, carbohydrates, when you break them down, give off water. If you're not drinking, uh, if you're not drinking a lot and you're also not eating a lot of carbs, but you're rather eating quite a lot of protein and fats, you're going to be more dehydrated than if you're eating some carbohydrates. So on a hiking trip, I'd always have some pasta in there because you're going to get some water out of the food. And particularly if, you, um, if you're rehydrating that pasta, clearly when you're cooking it, there's water in soaked into the pasta, but also the metabolism of breaking down those starches is going to release water and you get some water that way as well. So think about the diet, think about planning your route, think about drinking plenty in the mornings before you set off. If there's water sources there, think about um, drinking plenty as soon as you get to your camping spot in the evenings. Um, some people don't like to drink lots of water all at once, you just have to get over that. Um, also some people worry about drinking too much water in the evenings because they're going to have to get up for a pee. Okay, live with it. Yeah, you might not, um, you might not sleep for eight hours, but better to be well hydrated the next day and have to get up for a pee at three in the morning than not drink enough in the evening and be dehydrated the next day because it's not just it's not just about physical discomfort in terms of you know getting a headache and those sorts of things i i tend to get a headache first that's the, the first significant manifestation of dehydration for me it also lessens your physical performance quite significantly if you're not well hydrated you know a couple of percent of dehydration um can give you sort of 10, 15, 20% drop in physical performance. So if you're on a strenuous hike, you also, just in terms of efficiently covering the ground and not driving yourself into the ground, you want to stay hydrated that way as well. So those are some of my thoughts. Plan your route, plan your, plan your diet, make sure you've got enough capacity to carry water between where you're going to be camping and where you're going to get water even if that capacity isn't full all the time there might be one leg of your route where you really have to carry more water than you normally would um, then have the capacity maybe have a collapsible bladder or something where you can carry water into the area where you're really not going to be able to get water and then that can be stowed away the rest of the time so good question from philip there um, Hopefully that's useful and hopefully that's useful. Some of you will be planning trips for next spring and next summer. You know, it starts getting warm, May, June, July. Some of you will be planning trips for that time of year. So um, that may well be helpful to you um, in, in putting into the mix for their planning of trips going forwards. All right, next question is about tree and plant ID guides. And this is from Dave G from Edinburgh. And his question is, um, hi Paul, thanks for everything you do. I really enjoy your podcast and YouTube channel. I have a question about tree and plant identification. While I know there is no substitute for getting out on the ground and learning by looking, I'm also looking around for good tree and plant reference material, ideally printed books. Are you aware of any good reference books in this area? In particular, do you know of any that will help you identify plants and trees, but also describe their Bushcraft uses, i.e. this is what an ash tree looks like, it's good for X, Y, and Z uses. At the moment, I'm piecing together a lot of things from offhand comments, YouTube videos, and so on. So a really solid and maybe even portable reference guide would really help. Thanks again for all you do, Dave. All right, Dave, well, unfortunately, there isn't an all-in-one guide. Um, there are some very good tree identification guide books. There are some very good plant identification guidebooks and specifically um, some very good flower identification guidebooks. A lot of the plant books are centered around identifying flowers, um, but as the rest of the plants as well, but not so much on identifying them when there's no flower present. Um, 
I would recommend the Collins tree guide. I'd recommend the Collins flower guide. I'd recommend the um, wildflower key. And there are a few others as well. And they are listed on my website, actually, on paulcurtley.co.uk. Under resources, there are some lists there um, which link through to Amazon. And full disclosure, any Amazon link that you click through on, on my blog um, if you purchase that, I get 5% of the, um, the nominal, uh, the cover price, whatever you pay. Um, and that doesn't make it more expensive. It just means that it helps me pay for the hosting for my, for my site. Um, I don't make a lot of money out of that. It's, it's pocket money. But as I say, most months, it just about allows me to pay for the hosting and some of the other facilities on my site. So if you are going to buy those, um, I appreciate it if you click through on the links there. Um, I don't put anything on there um, cynically to, to try and get people buying things. It's a list of books that I think are really good and should form a core um, set of guides for you. There's some wild food guidebooks on there as well that I recommend which are useful and um, they're not really ID guides they're more um, uses in terms of wild foods um, but they dovetail nicely um, and there's a few bushcraft books on there as well um, as well as all of the information that's on my blog and all of that stuff dovetails together nicely um, but there isn't one guide that's going to do everything unfortunately um, and it's just one of the parts of the learning process that you have to go through in terms of piecing that stuff together. I would say though that that was my motivation for starting my online tree and plant ID course because the problem is, here's the problem in a nutshell, um, you go and get that Collins tree guide which I recommend you do get but there's about 1200 to 1400 tree species in there some of which are common and widespread and native. Some of them are common, widespread, introduced and naturalized. Some of them are quite rare and only in collections. And if your baseline knowledge um, isn't great, you're gonna spend a lot of time working out whether something that you found is something rare or something common. And um, there's no filter there. So what I did was looked at my knowledge of bushcraft and listed out which of the trees and the plants that are really useful. Which of them are really useful for fire, really useful for carving, really useful for food, really useful for utility, making cordage, making traps, all, all the different things that we might use them for, making withies, making uh, general things around camp for campcraft. Some things are better than others. Some species are better for, than others for, for feather sticks, all these things. Um, there's a relatively limited number of species which are going to give you a huge amount of utility and food uses in northern temperate and boreal which is where that course is focused and so rather than you having to learn hundreds of if not thousands of species of plant and hundreds if not thousands of species of, of trees and shrubs I've narrowed it down to these are the ones that you really need to know it's like the 80-20 principle these are the ones that you really need to know for your core bushcraft and survival knowledge and that's what we concentrate on teaching you how to identify um, as well as going through some of the uses uh, in that course. Now um, if you're interested in that and this isn't meant to be a sales pitch but it's a common problem and the, one of the reasons why I put that course together was because people kept asking me that question. Um, how do I know which trees and plants to I learn to identify to improve my bushcraft and survival knowledge? So I put that course together. Um, it's, uh, it's been successful. People have learned a lot from it. Um, I have, I've heard from just a few people this week saying they had a conversation with a tree surgeon uh, on, a, on a level um, of very good tree and plant knowledge that they wouldn't have been able to have at the beginning of the year. Um, um, people are, you know, around mostly around Europe, including the UK and into Scandinavia, as well as some people in North America. I've even got people on that course that are in Australia um, because there's a lot of our native species, which are common and widespread, that are planted in parks as exotics down in Australia and New Zealand. So people, are, people down there are even learning as well. But it, the, at its core, it's about northern temperate, so Britain, northern Europe, does go down into the med, um, some of the species we look at, as well as up into um, 
Scandinavia, up into the Boreal, relevant in North America as well, northern United States and into Canada, and it's going to give you a really good baseline. Um, if you're interested in that, it'll be open again in the new year. Um, just make sure you're on the mailing list on my blog and I will send out, um, when that's going to open, I'll just send out a quick email saying, opening soon, let me know if you're interested and then I'll send you more details. That's when that will be out. So by all means, go to my blog, click on resources, there's lists of field identification guides, list of um, wild food guides there. You're going to get a long way up the curve just with those guides. The Collins guides in particular are relatively portable. A couple of those in your backpack are going to give you like a couple of bricks maybe in your backpack, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, a bit of extra training. And um, they're going to be very, very useful for you being able, being able to identify things in the field. Um, and then, as I say, if you want to really hone down on some of the uh, species that are massively useful for bushcraft and survival um, in a lot of detail, then uh, you can jump on that course with me in the new year. That opens once a year and then runs through the year with um, 12 modules and um, live webinars, so like tutorials with me on the internet um, throughout the year um, to help you keep going through, through the course. So that's that. Um, so hopefully that helps. Some cheap and portable options on my blog and um, a more bespoke option if you want to take it in the new year. Um, and that's that. And that's the end of the questions for today. Um, if I could ask you to check out my Instagram feed. Um, I'm focusing quite a lot on Instagram at the moment. I really like it. Um, both in terms of putting up one or two really nice photos a day um, that are helpful um, or inspirational or just sharing where I am and what I'm doing like a little mini blog i'm doing some you know going back to the previous question about tree and plant id i'm trying to do more sort of mini blogs where if i see something interesting i'll take a photo of it and then i'll just write something just as you know if you're on a course with me and we're going for tree and plant walk we would do that for a number of tree and plant species i just put one up talk about the species some of the uses in the same way as i would speak to you in person if we're doing a tree and plant walk put that up and, and that's there, I put some other things there. The other thing is Instagram stories. I've been using that quite a lot. In the way I experimented with a Snapchat earlier in the year and I didn't find I was getting a lot of traction with it. Um, and also I was finding it quite hard work in terms of the co connectivity where I was, um, often wouldn't upload properly. I tried to do some virtual tree and plant walks with it. It didn't, didn't always work so well. One worked very successfully, but some of them just didn't work very well. Um, the video quality once it was uploaded was quite jerky. And so now that Instagram have brought out Instagram stories, um, that's working really nicely in combination with um, the other stuff that I'm doing on Instagram. I'm trying to do a bit of it behind the scenes stuff in terms of what we're up to or what I'm, what we're up to as a company or what I'm up to personally. And if you don't know what I'm talking about at all, when you look at your Instagram feed, you'll see at the top there are circles. And if anybody's posting on Instagram stories, um, they will show up in the feed at the top and you just click on that one and it will go through. Some of them are stills, some of them are videos and um, couple of ducks just fly out, flown over um, and you, you, you get them in a little basically I post stuff through the day and it puts it together and you can just watch through it and they're like sort of five second snippets um, photos I can put comments on the photos as well and that's quite fun so check that out um, I, I, I'm putting a lot of effort into Instagram at the moment and um, I'm finding it nice a nice way of sharing stuff in a very direct way. You know, I do try and put stuff on YouTube. I do try and put stuff on my blog, of course, and I've been doing that for more than half a decade now with my blog. You know, my blog's over six years old now. YouTube channel's a bit younger than that, um, but I've been putting stuff up consistently, but it takes time. You know, it takes time to edit a video, takes time even to produce these, takes time to write an article. And there's so much stuff that I see that I want to share with people that I'm finding Instagram is a great way of doing that, more so than Facebook, more so than Twitter. Um, I am active on those platforms, but 
I think as a almost like a mini blog platform, I'm finding Instagram very useful for that. So I'd love to see you there. Um, please comment. You know, more comments on the Instagram stuff. Always, always nice to hear from people there. You can private message me on there as well if you want to. So that's that. You know, that's my that's my call to action for today. I'd love to see you on Instagram. It complements what we're doing here very well. It's a very visual format. And um, so if you're listening on podcasts and you want to see more of what I'm up to, see more of the things that I'm seeing, Instagram's a great way of doing that. If you enjoy seeing the stuff here on the video, if you're watching on video, you're going to see more stuff over there on Instagram. So I'll put my Instagram um, name up here again. It's just Paul Kirtley. You can find me easily. I'll link it up underneath the video. I'll link it up in the show notes. Um, it's in the sidebar of my blog anyway, my, my Instagram profile. And I'll see you there. And um, I, at the time of write, at the time of speaking, I'm almost up to 5,000 followers on Instagram, which is quite small by some people's standards on Instagram. But um, I think I will, just thinking of a suitable prize, um, I will have some sort of giveaway for the 5,000th person that, that joins. Yep. So um, that joins, joins my following, as it were. I'm not making much sense now. I've been speaking too long. Right, um, the camera's about to die and um, I'm going to carry on walking now because I've cooled off quite a lot um, in the meantime. But nice to make another Aspore Kirtley. Thanks for your patience, those of you who've been waiting a few weeks for these. And I will see you on the next episode before too long. Take care. Enjoy these short winter days if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Enjoy the long summer days if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. Take care. Cheers.